Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Both parties should be able to unite for a great rebuilding of America's crumbling infrastructure. I know that Congress is eager to pass an infrastructure bill, and I am eager to work with you on legislation to deliver new and important infrastructure investment, including investments in the cutting-edge industries of the future. This is not an option. This is a necessity. Infrastructure is a funny word. Nobody's against it. There's almost universal agreement that we need more of it. And yet, particularly in the United States, there's no will to appropriate any money for it. So take the president. That's from the State of the Union. There's a code in what he said. He wants to deliver new investment. There are different ways for countries to buy big permanent things like roads and bridges and dams. They can start a public bank like the World Bank or the European Investment Bank. You can just pay for it. That's harder to do, but China does it. Or you can encourage public-private partnerships. That's where a private company spends the money, the country gets the road, and then the company gets to charge for access. When the president says deliver new investment, that's what he's talking about. We wanted a broad discussion this week about how to pay for big permanent things, so we called Laszlo Andor. He's an economist from Hungary, and he used to be a commissioner for the European Union. Unfortunately, the phone sound was not great, so we're not going to run the interview, but here's what he told us. In Europe, they used to have more public-private partnerships, but they turned out to be what he calls a statistical trick. One politician pays nothing and gets something now. A different politician deals with all the problems later. They don't do as many public-private partnerships in Europe as they used to. This is Alpha Chat, a project from the Financial Times and the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. This week, we wanted to understand what a public-private partnership is, so we sat down with Peter Norton. He's a history professor at the Department of Engineering at the University of Virginia. He surprised us. He told us that getting companies to pay for big things is a very old idea. We started by talking about the yearly cycle where Americans talk about an infrastructure crisis and then do nothing about it, and then we got metaphysical. We asked him what infrastructure is. It's, a, it's an interesting word. It, I think it's interesting because it's sort of free of baggage. And I think that's deliberate because its predecessor was public works. Uh, roads were public works. Bridges were public works. Uh, sewer systems were public works. Uh, aqueducts, etc. These were public works. Uh, they were called public works because they were built by public agencies using public funds. And uh, the term got a little dirty. Uh, it got associated with political payoffs. It got associated with pork barrel politics. Uh, got associated with waste. And pretty soon the people who wanted more public works figured out, and you know, this is a, over a generation ago now, that it's uh, smart to call your public work something else. And infrastructure is relatively 
innocent still. To when do we date the word infrastructure? Well, the word was gradually imported and gradually displaced public works in the middle 20th century, particularly after the 50s. Uh, you still see public works predominantly into the 50s. And beginning in the 60s and 70s, infrastructure starts to displace it. And the displacement at this point has been complete for a couple of decades. And the issue is, if I understand it correctly, um, there's always a problem that comes with building large roads or, or putting together massive projects. Um, there's always going to be waste. There's always going to be uh, more money than the public purse is comfortable spending. And so by renaming it, you haven't fixed the problem. It's an old trick in business. Uh, you know, I recall a, a carpet shop in my town that used to go bankrupt every few years and reopen with a new name. And it was the same business. And, you know, a name gets tainted, you shelve it and replace it with another name. That doesn't mean you have solved the underlying problem, as you've just, you know, clearly stated. And so infrastructure retains many of the same kinds of problems that public works retained. And because it's inherently complex and sometimes messy to have uh, public financing of, of projects um, because politics will inevitably be involved. So walk me through a brief history of how we pay for, if we're not going to call it infrastructure or public works, big stuff. Big stuff. That's America, a, let's, let's go back to the Constitution and then walk our way yeah. forward. How do we pay for big stuff? Yeah, well, you know, there's a the old word for big stuff was internal improvements, which was sort of a, a nice euphemism in its own right, because, you know, who doesn't want an improvement? Particularly uh, internally. Yeah, really. Like, <laughs> the external improvements aren't going to do us any good. No, I mean, you do, we don't want to be building canals for France, right? So uh, internal improvements uh, was the term in the U.S., for what we now call infrastructure. When when did we call them internal improvements? Well, the term really began to get up traction in the early 19th century. I'm talking about the Erie Canal, that's 1820s and 30s, uh, the National Road, uh, which, you know, went out through Maryland, Kentucky, Ohio, uh, and, and that takes us into the middle of the 19th century. Uh, the word internal improvements, maybe surprisingly, developed a taint itself, despite its, you know, nice sound, its attractive sound. This is your carpet store theory. Yeah, right. So, the, you know, this this is the first renaming uh, was when they dropped internal improvements, which was already a euphemism in the first place. But uh, internal improvements were attacked as a way for politicians to funnel money to constituencies out of the treasury. It was associated, for example, with the Whig Party uh, in, in the early to mid-19th century, and the Democrats scored points by denouncing it as as jobbery, as pork barrel politics, and so on. And as a result, internal improvements declines from the national vocabulary by the middle of the 19th century. How do we pay for these internal improvements in the first half of the 19th century? Even into the 18th century, even before independence, you find equivalent projects, uh, particularly in the form of toll roads, toll canals and toll bridges. And the toll, ex you know, explains how the financing worked. Now, is But there was some public money. Well, the public part, so the public money was scarce and private capital is cautious. So how do you get the government with its scarce resources and the private sector with its caution to get anywhere? Well, they make a deal. And the deal is the government will promise an entrepreneur a monopoly. 
you you will have a guaranteed return on your investment because there will be no competition. Uh, and in return for that protection, you know, you will take this risky, expensive venture. You'll you'll find the money that will attract investors, and you'll build, let's say, this bridge. And so from the beginning, these projects were associated with monopolies. And of course, monopoly has been a dirty word for a very long time. Although economists were arguing, particularly since uh, John Stuart Mill in 1848, uh, in his Principles of Political Economy, he said certain enterprises are what he called natural monopolies. In other words, you can't have like, say, four competing bridges next to each other on the same river the way you can have, say, four competing toothbrushes on a shelf in a drugstore. It just doesn't work that way. We apply this now to uh, internet access as well. Yeah, right. In fact, technological innovation both sometimes disrupts uh, existing monopolies and creates new ones. And so the category is constantly changing. And politics intrudes all the time, too, because uh, there's an advantage in having your enterprise designated as a natural monopoly and, and thereby gaining government protection and favor. And this means that uh, there's a political angle to the definitions of these categories. So you said the phrase internal improvement became a dirty word because it was associated with pork or whatever it was that we called pork in the in antebellum America, what was the pork that was associated with it? What was coming out of the public purse if, if these were, you know, people taking on monopolies or rather people, companies spending money with the assurance of a monopoly? Yeah, the tricky thing is that it's very hard to make sure that the benefit from this project goes to the people who are in effect footing the bill. So there was, for example, federal money involved in the National Road Project, which uh, was a, a road project extending from uh, Baltimore West into the what was then the Northwest Territory. And Is this what became the Blue Ridge Highway? I believe it became Route 40, US 40. US 40 actually goes by multiple names on different segments of it. But um, the selling point was, this is how you will develop a national economy because you'll link markets together and this will make knit together the country and make the whole prosper. The, the rejoinder to that was, well, it's not doing a whole lot of good for people who are not in the vicinity of this road project. In fact, it's actually hurting them because resources are being diverted away, business is being diverted away. Um, and one of the reasons why Andrew Jackson was very popular to the limited electorate of his day was that he could point to his opposition, which favored these internal improvements, as people who were diverting the resources of the country into the pockets of a few people. Those Baltimoreans. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> so you have Jacksonian internal improvements. How do they become early 20th century public works? Well, throughout the 19th century, in fact, in some ways, increasingly throughout the 19th century, uh, state and particularly federal money for public works, infrastructure, internal improvements was always easy to attack. So there were a number of workarounds. Um, one was uh, for th when the railroads were uh, moving west was to offer the railroads grants of land around the railroads as a way to entice the uh, private enterprise to invest in these. And of course, that was controversial too. So there's a sort of uh, a constant instability between the people who are sure that these projects are corrupt and people who are sure that these projects are necessary. And there's a, 
this constant sort of dance between those two things. And these land grants were under the, the John Stuart Mill principle of a natural monopoly. It was assumed that a railroad was a natural monopoly and you don't want to overbuild. Right. The idea was you're not going to get these railroads without uh, some sort of government incentives for the simple fact that if you are an investor and you want to risk a lot of money on a railroad, you're going to refuse to take that kind of risk if there's a chance that another railroad will open up like parallel to it a mile away. And so you want a government guarantee that you have this exclusive right. Was there any discussion at the time of government just taking on the risk, building the rail? You know, I haven't encountered a proposal for direct government uh, financing construction and operation of these projects. And I think that's because, well, but for one thing, this is an era when the federal budget basically all came from tariffs. You know, there was no income tax. So the federal budget was very small. That's part of it. And another part of it was the majority view was that the federal government has no place building these projects. State governments doing it is itself already controversial. But for the federal government to, say, finance a project in a certain state, it looks like a, a payoff to a local benefit. And roads were very hard to justify. You could justify some kinds of projects because the federal government, of course, has a constitutional responsibility for the national defense. So, okay, you could build coastal fortifications. And coastal fortifications are public works. And there was an agreement you could build those things because the Constitution says that's a federal responsibility. But there was nothing in the Constitution to support the notion that you could build a lot of other kinds of non-military projects. And there was a consensus view that this would be a federal encroachment on the states and a usurpation of a state responsibility. So this thing, again, and we're going to come to this in a second, we talk about public-private partnerships as if it's something novel, an innovative way to solve an old problem, when in fact it is the way we've always solved this problem. There's such a thing as a useful oversimplification, and I think that's one. The world is complex, and we need simplifications to make it intelligible. And so certainly there are a lot of particular differences between public-private partnerships and old school public utilities. But I think what they have in common is more essential, more fundamental than the particular differences that you see, a lot of which have to do with technology. So um, what they have in common, of course, is that in both 19th century America and in 21st century public-private partnerships, you see a deal, in effect, being cut between a public authority, a public agency, and a, a private enterprise. And the deal inevitably involves some sorts of guarantees to the private enterprise enforced by the, the public authorities and some sorts of criteria that the private enterprise will have to comply with. And in that sense, public-private partnerships really are public utilities in a new outfit. So you were talking about uh, this transition from the National Road through the railroads west. So then we enter the 20th century, sort of the, the first great phase of national public works. Yeah. In the 20th century, we really start to see the prevailing model that public-private partnerships became the answer to or the, uh, the response to. So, uh, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, the federal government's role in public works or infrastructure was really quite small. So again, anything you could call a national defense uh, necessity, that could qualify as public works. 
Um, but there was a growth in the category of things that could qualify as something that um, public money and public guarantees uh, against competition would apply to. And this had to do with the fact that uh, states do have a responsibility for protecting the public health. This is a, a common law tradition inherited from England where the authorities can introduce a regulation or a law that might infringe on liberties uh, or require an expenditure of public money if it is a necessity for the public health. So there were basically no sewers in American cities until 1870s, 80s, 90s. And in those years, public health was making the connection between water supply, sewage, drainage, and infectious disease. And once that connection with infectious disease was well established, then it was possible to justify public money for municipal water supplies, which actually were usually publicly owned by the municipality, um, and also um, sewers and so on. So you, th that's one example of an increasing uh, scope of public responsibility. Um, you know, another one would be for certain kinds of paved roads. Surprisingly, the bicycle lobby in the U.S. was so powerful in the 1890s that it managed to get public support for some paving of streets and roads. Um, I'm sorry, I'm just laughing at the idea of big bicycle. Yeah, it is. Well, in, in big, there was a bicycle lobby. It was called the League of American Wheelmen. While not large in terms of membership, it was pretty influential because bicycling was particularly popular among the more influential class of people. It was a leisure uh, activity for many bicyclists. And, you know, it makes a very big difference if you're a cyclist, if you can get a paved road. But bicycling really took off in the safety bicycle era. Safety bicycle was the first name for what we now just call the bike, you know, the, the one with the, where the wheels are both the same size. And uh, in 18, the mid-1890s, bicycling was huge. And it was huge enough that there was real demand for roads. Now, these were not federal roads because you couldn't say, well, you know, we need bicycle routes for national defense or something like this. But it began a precedent for paving of streets and roads that was then picked up by a much more powerful lobby after the turn of the century, namely the automobile interest groups which gave themselves a very convenient name that I think we need again, because we don't, we don't have a good name today for that conglomeration of related industries that is interested in the automobile business. Um, they had a nice shorthand term for that then, which was motordom. And motordom really wanted to make paving of roads. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but this is fascinating. When you say motordom, what you're really talking about is uh, for financial services in D.C., they call it the blob. And the blob is uh, members of Congress who sit on relevant committees, who don't want their committee responsibilities to disappear, and it's donors, and it's and they all work in concert for certain legislation. And so motordom is what they used to call that for the motor vehicle lobby. I would modify that a little bit in that in its early decades, motordom was almost exclusively the business side of that blob. Uh, it took a while for it to cultivate the politics side of that blob. Um, but, you know, eventually they did cultivate that 
political side of the blob. And so yet, then at that point, I would say, yes, that's exactly what it is. With the arrival of motordom, how does that change how we tax and pay for these newly paved roads that the League of American Wheelmen, sorry, I just had to get that in, that the League of American Wheelmen began asking for? So motordom was naturally interested in paved roads. They were interested in some kinds of pavement more than others. Uh, we forget, for example, that the probably the single most popular street pavement in cities a century and more ago was wood blocks. And wood block pavements were slippery for automobile tires, so they you know, preferred asphalt. And of course, asphalt is implicated with the petroleum industry, so which is in turn nicely connected with automobiles. So there was a sort of network of common interests here. The challenge was, how do you justify a public funding of roads that serve primarily a segment of the population, namely motorists? And that was actually a pretty tough sell. Now, within city limits, there was some degree of paving was quite common already, whether it was wood block or stone or brick, uh, and sometimes natural lake asphalt from Trinidad. And this meant that motoring within city limits was possible, although certainly the motors preferred some pavements over others. It was a little harder to motor outside of the city where the roads were unpaved, and that was tough to, to justify getting those roads paved. So a, an early strategy, and it proved effective, was to contend that in the motor age, the U.S. mails are delivered by motor vehicle. Uh, the trains actually, of course, carried the bulk of the mail. But to get that mail to the door required by the early 20th century, by, say, 1910 to 20, when uh, the horse-drawn mail uh, wagons are being replaced by motor uh, mail trucks, um, that that link is is uh, wh where they can start to justify a federal responsibility because the mails are a federal uh, responsibility. A big piece of this was that until the end of the 19th century, rural customers did not get mail service generally. You had to go to town, go to the post office and collect your mail. But rural free delivery was gradually introduced throughout the 1890s into the 20th century and rural free delivery made it a national commitment to get your mail to you. Which came first, the roads or the rural free, rural free delivery? It, it was a back and forth. It was, um, so rural free delivery did not happen all at once, and neither did paving. And every time uh, rural free delivery was introduced, it incentivized paving. And every time paving happened, it made it easier to extend rural free delivery. And so that uh, interplay back and forth both helped to pave rural roads and uh, helped to extend the mail service, such that uh, you get the first Federal Aid Highway Act, I'm talking federal money now, for a network of paved rural roads in 1916. And that really establishes a precedent, and that's, that's a kind of a watershed, because before that, it, there was an argument that the federal government does not have a role. States pave roads, counties pave roads, cities pave streets. The federal government does not have any place paving roads in America, mainly because roads are inevitably serving local traffic and the federal government is supposed to be serving a national audience. And the, the mail really was the thing that opened that door and it hasn't shut since. You know, mail was a justification 
for interstate paving. And then the next justification for interstate paving, the, you know, the great interstate paving project of the 20th century was national defense in the 50s. Yeah, I, w- I, I would say there's intermediate steps that are very important. But uh, yeah, it's quite interesting that uh, the interstate highway system was justified on national defense grounds, because that, of course, was the one federal role that everybody agreed was indeed a real federal role. Uh, In 1944, Congress passes the uh, Federal Aid Highway Act of 1944, where they lay out in principle the notion of interstate motor traffic, but it's World War II, they don't really have the funding for it. But really, after World War II, there is a no-holds-barred press by motordom for a massive interstate highway project. It's their contention that this is the way we build prosperity, this is the way you get out of traffic congestion. They argue that instead of the solution for cities being to uh, promote spatially efficient modes of transportation in cities on the grounds that cities are dense, they argue that cities are doomed in a world where everybody will want to drive because if they can't find parking and if they can't move around downtown, they just won't go there. And this becomes their pitch point. But it really helps uh, them make this argument that there's a Cold War standoff with the Soviet Union because that really clinches any argument about whether federal money is okay. So it's still, you know, there's still not a strong consensus for a lot of federal dollars for roads because it still appears to be primarily a state responsibility. But once it's clear that the Soviet Union Let's say 1949, they, they detonate an atomic bomb. In uh, 1954, they detonate a hydrogen bomb. And in 1957, they launch Sputnik, which proves that they could deliver something at intercontinental range. And of course, they already had long-range bombers then. You take those kinds of risks together. And there was, of course, a civil defense pub- public campaign to prepare people to evacuate cities. And Motordom starts arguing in the 50s, you need massive highways so that people can evacuate cities in time of war. It's a really kind of an, an amazing claim for a lot of reasons because, I mean, one of them being that to evacuate a city successfully by private motor vehicle is, is a heck of a proposition. Now, we can't do that really today despite all the infrastructure we've got. But I, a lot of people have told me they thought that the military defense argument was a legitimate argument. To me, it appears to be more of a strategy to legitimize a lot of federal money for highways. Um, A corollary of that strategy is to contend that um, if that money is raised from motorists through user fees, which is primarily gas taxes, then all you're doing is returning to the motorist what the motorist is paying for. And so there's a certain sort of common sense justice argument behind this, too. Again, I think it's a misleading argument, but, but, but it's there. During this period that you're talking about, the victory of motordom in the 40s and 50s, there are a lot of other countries in the world that are making decisions as well. You have uh, huge parts of Europe, Japan, that need to be completely rebuilt from scratch. How did the way they think about this, how did the way they tax it, how did the way they talk about it differ from the way the U.S. built. You've got this massive global buildup all happening in coordination. 
After World War II, particularly in Western Europe, there's a notion that, you know, the Americans are the ones who know how to do this. Uh, we will do it the American way. And this isn't just emulation. This is also American experts and contractors building these relationships overseas. Um, you know, there were a number of enterprises involved in that, but Wilbur Smith Associates specialized in taking American techniques to Western Europe, to Australia, and to elsewhere in the world and saying, you know, here's how it's done. We know because we built this stuff in America, we can build it here. Um, and generally, there was a welcome reception by the governments to these uh, initiatives and the governments themselves were involved. It's kind of shocking. You mentioned that, uh, you know, so many, uh, for example, uh, West German cities had been substantially destroyed. Well, to a shocking degree, they continued to self-destruct to some degree in the 50s and 60s to accommodate this American model. What do you mean self-destruct? What was the model? How did that change the German inner city? Right. Well, I should start by saying the U.S. cities, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that U.S. cities, particularly from the late 50s through the 60s, engaged in a lot of self-destruction or maybe the fairer term is state and federal destruction to accommodate interstate highways and then, of course, the flood of cars that came in to find a place to park them all. Um, and so, you know, the U.S. destroyed block after block of its own cities to provide space for these highways and the parking. And horrifically, much of that was at the expense of people who didn't drive at all, particularly African-American neighborhoods in American cities, you know, on a cost grounds, at least ostensibly, you know, this is where we can afford to put this stuff in. Well, this is the story of the Cross Bronx Expressway, which determined what the Bronx looks like and the economy of the Bronx for decades, generations. It's the Cross Bronx Expressway. It's uh, the Chrysler Freeway in Detroit. It's the Central Artery in Boston. Almost every large American city had a devastating project come in, and the devastation was generally compounded when the cars would flood in and uh, so property owners would um, find that they could uh, save a lot of money by clearing away uh, aging buildings and putting in surface parking, uh, that would give them a big markdown on their property taxes and they could make some money. And so you really see U.S. cities sort of vanishing before your eyes in aerial photography and being replaced by parked cars. I mean, this is what it actually looks like. But this isn't completely what happened in European cities. How did they no. make different decisions? So it's important to recognize that actually, particularly in the 50s and 60s, they were emulating the American model. Now, they didn't go nearly so far. Um, one difference was that there was a general agreement in Europe that the major highways were not going to, to go into and through the cities the way they did in the U.S., Although, you know, there certainly were cases of this and there were many proposals. But I think what made the European case diverge was citizen opposition, which you start to see a lot of. Now, you see citizen opposition in the U.S. too. Uh, for example, San Francisco stopped all uh, interstate highway projects within city limits, uh, foregoing an enormous amount of money. Now, in Europe, it was actually much easier to stop projects because it wasn't like you were giving up an enormous amount of money. So in the U.S., if a city gave up a federal highway project, it lost the money that the federal government was going to pick up for that was 90 percent. And under law, the highway trust fund could be used only for roads. 
which meant if you refused a project, you were kissing that money goodbye. There was no such bargain uh, in Europe. But uh, Europeans also organized and they stopped these projects, actually much like Americans in better off neighborhoods stopped them here. So we're in Washington, D.C. right now. We're not that far from Wisconsin Avenue. That was going to be an interstate highway. And uh, that was a relatively well-to-do part of Washington, D.C. And as in Europe, it was possible for citizens who had a voice, unlike marginalized populations, to get these projects stopped. This was generally against the stated preferences of the uh, national authorities in these governments, but the national authorities generally did come around in the end. I'm a guest faculty member in the Netherlands right now. I've spent my summer there and I go back occasionally. And the Netherlands is the most friendly country to non-automotive transportation in the world in terms of rail, cycling, walkability, public transit, buses, and so on. But it was eye-opening to me to see in my work there how far the plans on paper were to put giant highway projects right through Amsterdam. Um, but when those projects were publicized, people mobilized to stop them. The, in the Netherlands, people think of the streets as for everybody. Uh, and when the authorities gave priority to cars, increased speed limits, and pedestrians, including children, were being hit and killed, the uh, Dutch population rose up and marched, carried signs saying, stop the child killing, sat down in streets, uh, laid down uh, to emulate dead corpses all over their streets. They were going to stop these things, and they did. And their national government eventually came around, listened, and said, okay, we're going to rethink how we do this. Whereas in the U.S., we took those roads and we just ran them through the black parts of town. That's exactly right. Um, you take practically every city with a large African-American neighborhood and a major highway plowed right through it, often fantastically destructively. And for a long time, you couldn't even get any kind of guaranteed compensation if you were a renter. That required that the project be classified as urban renewal. If the project wasn't classified as urban renewal, you could sometimes qualify for something like a $100 transition allowance to help you move your furniture. It was really quite shockingly destructive. Is it possible to think now, um, when we look at uh, the what's still called the infrastructure crisis, it seems like you said earlier there are a lot of roads that got built that maybe shouldn't have been built, that we built too much and our problem yes. is now maintaining it. Yes. It also seems like that there's a distinction there between uh, more rural roads and more urban roads. Uh, I've looked at the Department of Transportation statistics, and it seems like the roads that need repairing are more likely to be the ones that are less trafficked. Mm -hmm. So it also seems like we've been talking about cities a lot and how some cities resist this. Um is it possible to say that transportation politics is about rural subsidies, is about figuring out which rural areas get these things that don't necessarily make sense for a private company because the money and the traffic and the density is just not there? Well, you make an excellent point. And I think this is connected to the fact that while it's relatively easy to think of lots of ways of getting around cities that are less expensive in terms of the infrastructure more sustainable, uh, more spatially efficient, and so on, it, those alternatives are not so obvious for rural America. Um, you know, Henry Ford himself said he developed the Model T to get the farmer out of the mud. So the, the, the automobile originally, in his view, 
was a way to connect farmers to markets, to railheads and so on. It was not a uh, way to get around cities. Well, this suggests that as we begin to rethink the extent of our commitment to the automobile, part of that is to recognize where the automobile is actually working as the best tool for the job. And that may indeed be rural America. Now, I have to hasten to add that you'd be amazed to go back 100 years and see how much of rural America you could navigate by interurban railroad. You know, you could go from one town in Kansas to another uh, by rail um, quite easily. And then the network was remarkably extensive. But I do think it's a fair point to be made that the automobile is the right tool for the job in much of rural and suburban America. And this means that there's going to be some infrastructure needs, particularly maintenance needs, persisting in these areas. Much of rural America has had population declines, and so this presumably means there may not be a lot of new infrastructure needed in those areas. But um, you do need to do something for uh, the infrastructure that's already there where people live. And certainly, there's a well-established precedent that government has a role to play in making sure that people have the necessities where private enterprise can't do it profitably. Peter Norton, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance and Amy Keene from the Financial Times. We'll be posting show notes on Alphaville with links, but as always, we want to understand when you listen and what you want to hear, so please email us at alphachat at ft.com. Me, I'm going to join the League of American Wheelmen. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.